0: Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by InfoSecurity Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website, and presented by me, Info Security Editorial Director, Eleanor Dalloway. This is the Into Security spin-off podcast that allows me to indulge in deeper meaningfuls with the industry's finest minds. Hi everyone and welcome to the Into Security Chats April podcast. I've been absolutely buzzing about this one today. My guest is Camille Stewart and Camille Stewart is the Global Head of Product Security Strategy at Google. She's also the co-founder of Share the Mic in Cyber and a cyber fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. Camille has served across government and industry, including at the Department of Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, Capitol Hill and Deloitte. Camille serves on the board of directors for the International Foundation for Electoral Systems and Girl Security. She also has a podcast of her own called Hustle Over. Now, Camille describes her day job as bringing together Google's central security team and product security teams to help secure products that billions of people use to live their lives. And I think if I had to describe Camille's career today in one sentence, for me, it would be that it serves to make the rest of us feel like eternal underachievers. So Camille, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me Eleanor I feel like I need to have you introduce me all the time you're too
0: kind. Oh oh, I'd love to. Um, So I start each of these chat podcasts with a food and drink podcast pairing Um, so I ask each interviewee to tell the listener what they would like them to have as a snack and a drink as they listen along today Um, so what would you suggest Camille? Well, I am
1: currently loading up on caffeine. So I recommend you all do the same. If it's later in the day, um, you know, maybe spike it a little bit, put a little bourbon in it. Um, And then for a snack, if I were snacking right now, I would have some popcorn. So coffee and popcorn. I don't know if that's a good mix, but it it sounds good to me.
0: Sounds amazing. Sweet or salted popcorn or toffee?
1: Definitely some kettle corn. (laughs)
0: we don't have that over here.
1: What is that? It's sweet popcorn. And they kind of like coat it in
0: this metal drum. It's so good. You've got to try it. Wow. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Okay. Well, that sounds like a really good place to start. So I don't think I can begin anywhere but with your role at DHS under one of my absolute heroes, President Obama. So, Camille, can you tell us what was it like to serve under Obama? And give us a little bit of a background around that role and your time at the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I
1: mean, it was an absolute honor. Um, to serve in a political appointment, you are serving at the leisure of the president. You were executing his priorities within that agency. And so to be connected to someone who was prioritizing cybersecurity in the way that he was, but also prioritizing the American people and our connections with allies, um, it it really resonated with me and was empowering to do the work. So my portfolio was a senior policy advisor for Cyber Infrastructure and Resilience, policy. And um, I focused a lot on our international portfolio. So I led our relationship with Israel for the department, with the Five Eyes, with, you know, Japan, countries that were strategic priorities at the time for the administration. And we were able to do a lot of important collaboration. But I was also focused a lot on some of the private sector-focused initiatives because I had transitioned in from the private sector. So we were negotiating privacy shield at the time, the VASNAR cyber export controls. We were in the midst of the ongoing and never ending encryption debate, things like that. Um, And so it was a great pleasure to get such a breadth of experience. We also landed um, Presidential Policy Directive 41, which. Detailed how the government orients itself around a significant cyber attack. And we saw that playing out as the government oriented itself around recent attacks. And it's just been a, a career pleasure to watch as the work that was done at that time of my life continue to bear fruit for the nation and, and for individuals across the world.
0: Yeah, it's just amazing and something you should be so proud of. And I'm not surprised that you are. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you at that time? Because did it come quite early on in your career? I don't know if I want to say
1: how old I was, but uh, fairly early. I mean, at that time, I had spent time on the Hill. I'd been um, a practicing attorney for five years. So not too early, but,
0: you know, definitely on the front end. (laughs) You must just look really, really good for your age, then. <laughs> so take it as a huge compliment.
1: Yeah, you know, it is both a uh, <laughs> a good thing and a bad thing. It definitely, um, I definitely look younger than I am, and and I take it definitely in my personal life. But at work, it can it can cause questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Interesting to see both sides of that perspective. <laughs> um, and, and how did you? Find the transition, As you know, like you say, it's a huge honour to serve in that type of role, in that political position, that political role, to go in later to the private sector. How did that transition feel? Yeah, so going back to the private sector, I...
1: Um, was able to switch to Deloitte. So I went to consulting where DHS and DOD were my clients. So I kind of found a way to have one foot in the mission and one foot in the private sector. So I was able to continue some of the work that I had been doing in the administration Um, And find ways to expand that impact. So I continued the election security work and we were able to convene state, local and federal players to have some discussions in advance of the 2018 midterms and um, helped with some tech innovation scouting so led efforts to get new and agile capabilities scaled into government infrastructure, and so it was great to kind of have the resources of private sector but still be serving the mission of DHS and DOD, Um, and it was a great transition period that then I could take that information, take those learnings, take the um, connectedness to mission, but the private sector resources and those lenses and apply them at a place like Google, which was my next step after that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You sort of had one foot in each sector, I suppose, with the clients um, you you had at the time, which must have made for like a nice, smoother transition, I suppose. Do you ever see yourself going back into um, politics or government sector um, at some point? Definitely. I mean, I'm open to it. I don't know when that would be,
1: but uh, I think it's, extremely valuable to move between the two. They are so interconnected and we're seeing that as we stand up bodies that pull the private sector, the public sector, academia together more and more. They're reliant on each other. They need to understand each other. And I I think the more we have people move seamlessly from private sector to public sector, um, the better off we'll be as an industry. So if the right opportunity presented
0: itself, I would make the transition back. I totally agree with what you said there. And and you do you did mention how they are very reliant on each other, um, and there's a huge amount of crossover, of course. but but do they work together enough? Do you think there's scope for being more um, coordinated together? Definitely. I mean, we are at
1: early stages yeah. of true collaboration and coordination um, between public sector and private sector. I think bodies like, um JCDC and some of the other ones that have recently stood up are great conduits for that kind of collaboration um, and collective thinking but there's a lot of there's a lot of runway for us to really explore how private sector can support government how government can support private sector what are the legal frameworks that can support the types of collaboration we need um how can we declassify things sooner. So private sector is getting more information. Um, But we have made some big strides. And what I'm seeing is a lot of promise in just how much private sector is engaged on a national and international scale with what's going on in the cyberspace. Um, So work to do, but lots being done.
0: Your, um, you mentioned earlier about your sort of training towards being an attorney. And actually, we interviewed you at the Q&A in the last issue of Infosecurity magazine. And you briefly mentioned then about your route into cybersecurity and initial aspirations of becoming an attorney. So tell us how those aspirations evolved and how you ended up going down this path into the cybersecurity space. Yeah. So my dad's a computer
1: scientist. And so I grew up on technology but I also made my parents sign contracts every time they made me a promise. And so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and it started me on a trajectory to figure out how to do both. I went to law school thinking, maybe I'll protect other people's technology and be an intellectual property lawyer. Cause there wasn't really a, a strong cyber law program. Um, when I went to law school, you could take a class about, you know, intellectual property online and a few other things online, but there weren't really cyber law programs. So it wasn't, it's a it's a newer field. Um, but after law school, I got recruited to a cybersecurity company, and that's kind of where it all clicked. I was doing their legal work, but I was also co-managing their security operations center and just wearing a number of different hats, as you do in a, a small tech company, and quickly realized that while there was a lot of utility and a lot of importance in being, you know, kind of a cybersecurity compliance attorney, right? What are our obligations in the event of breach? What are what kind of contractual requirements or legal requirements do we have to meet? There's also a huge gap in how security teams are collaborating with folks with a legal and policy mind. And so I found myself often sitting on security teams and bringing that lens to the discussions and that was the sweet spot the opportunity to leverage my legal analysis brain and my technical acumen in service of the security work and so i've kind of ping-ponged back and forth over time sometimes sitting on a security team um, and leveraging that lens sometimes sitting on a policy team and making sure that the security policies truly connect to the work that's happening on security teams but always collaborating directly with the security team and bringing that that legal lens.
0: Yeah, it's nice that you've kind of been able to keep hold of that part of your training and all those years (laughs) of education around the attorney side of things in your your job today. I've got to ask though, what's an example of a contract that you made your parents sign? (laughs) (laughs) So, My parents used to make us
1: promises around grades. So we would say you get X amount if you get an A for each class, and this amount for a B, and then you'd tally it up based on your report card. And so, at the beginning of each semester, I, we would negotiate, <laughs> and I'd negotiate on behalf of myself and my sisters, and we would sign a contract. And at the end of the semester, when we got our report cards, we would pull it out,
0: and we would uh, <laughs> hold them to account. This is amazing. I'm seeing so much missed Opportunity from my childhood right now.
1: (laughs) Right? So my parents definitely encouraged that behavior. They loved that my first instinct was to kind of capture it in writing. And they really nurtured that, which I appreciate.
0: (laughs) Amazing. And I mean, you said your your dad is a computer scientist. Um, You're obviously now working for Google as global head of product security strategy. So is, is Google dream job material for you? Was that the sort of holy grail?
1: It's definitely one of them. I mean, for me, I'm not connected necessarily to the company. It's more about the impact and the work. And I, in this season of life, I'm very concerned about how much individuals feel disconnected from cybersecurity work, despite the fact that it is so connected to their everyday lives. I'm sure you get this too, where you've got friends who are getting their social media hacked and other things, and they're worried about that. But in the same breath, they're like, I'm not turning on two-factor authentication or like just not engaged in the discussion. Right. And... um And working at Google is a great opportunity to make those connections for people, to bring security to them, um, to engage them in a dialogue and to kind of go before them to make changes that need to be made in products. And one of the reasons I chose Google um, when I was making my transition was because I felt like they really were trying to get it right. I mean, no company is perfect, but... um, when a change in societal dynamics, when a new understanding of how um, a tool or a capability or a product impacted people in a way that didn't resonate, privacy, whatever, I felt like they were trying to be responsive to that. And so there was an opportunity to make change. And that's what I experienced, particularly when I was in um, my role as head of security policy for Android and Play. I was able to implement a lot of new policies that kind of changes change the way we interact with our phones. And um, the fact that the organization was open to driving that forward and even taking some big leaps that had yet to be taken was what was exciting for me. So the opportunity to make that kind of change is what would be the dream job, not necessarily the organization.
0: Yeah, I find that really interesting actually, and it's a it's a really nice perspective on it. You mentioned two-factor authentication, and that strikes me as something that perhaps authentication is still one of the biggest challenges when it comes to usability and user experience. And a bit like how you referenced at the beginning, the friends that are worried about their social media being hacked, but they still don't want to turn it on. Do you find that that challenge? of usability versus security is something that still keeps you very busy at Google. Definitely. We
1: are always trying to figure out how to make that easier on our users, which is why we've turned on many things by default and um, made certain things opt-in versus opt-out, putting choices in front of people's faces. One of the changes um, that I drove while I was in Android was um, around location data and you know how you are served up notifications that are digestible about what an application is asking from you and what control you have to say yes or no. And so the goal is always to empower users to be able to make choices. I usually liken it to physical security. You and I might want to take a shortcut through an alley, Um, And in the end you might decide to do it and I might not for a whole bevy of factors that you analyze very quickly. You might know karate and I don't and whatever. And that informed risk, that risk informed decision is what I want folks to make in their digital lives. Okay, I'm, I'm turning on two factor authentication because that two seconds that it takes for me to check my authenticator app and type in the code is worth me not losing access to my social media account but I'm not going to turn off the Bluetooth on my phone because I like to have my watch connected to it all the time. And the the benefits I get from that are worth it. Those are the kind of informed choices I want people to be empowered to make.
0: I wonder whether talking about sort of users and uh, that balance for them of the usability versus security, your role is obviously a global one. Do you see a difference as you as you go around the globe and see the different cultures of different levels of acceptance or willingness to make certain trade-offs as it comes to sort of privacy versus security versus usability and and are you able in your role to to see those differences as you go into different countries and different cultures
1: yes definitely the trade-offs are different access um what devices are used for is different. So the societal context also changes the lens and the the decision making, but it usually does come down to those two things, right? Some kind of customization, usability, personalization, and privacy or security, right? People are definitely making choices that lean one way or the other, and those change based on their understanding of what the underlying capability does and the social discourse around them and as that changes they tend to make incremental shifts um, and and so i hope that we continue to have conversations about what our technology does and what it accesses because across the landscape a more informed populace means that we're making those choices a little bit better and then we can dictate to organizations to governments to whoever um, where we as society, as as states, as, you know, individuals want that line to be drawn for us. And I definitely see it every day across a number of different
0: geographies. As you talked then, I could see more the sort of the importance of what you said at the beginning, where it, it was the, the impact that you're able to make rather than the, the brand or the company that was such a draw to you. And that just sort of all ties in and makes sense as I was listening to you answer those questions. Um, I'd like to go on to talk about Share the Mic in Cyber, if you don't mind. So where did the idea originate from and why did you think it's something that's needed? Yeah,
1: so in in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and others, there was an outcry um, and and a, a recognition across the cyber community of wanting to do something but feeling kind of stuck This problem seems bigger than me as an individual. I don't have any power. This seems like it needs to be an organizational change or an industry shift. And a lot of folks wanted to be a part of a solution, but didn't didn't see a way to be because the problem was so large. And um, Lauren and I separately saw the Share the Mic Now campaign, which was hosted by um, a number of white women who gave their Instagram platforms to Black women, and they were all across politics and and entertainment, and it was just such a beautiful exchange of um, communities and and opening up of networks, and just like a it, it turned out to be a great like celebration of womanhood, and I saw it and put out a tweet that just said like I don't know who came up with this, but we should do this in cyber and national security and I had never met Lauren before, and she responded to my tweet, and we started talking about how we could do that. I had already decided to do it in the national security space through another organization that I run called Next Gen NatSec, and so we did that on Juneteenth in 2020. So June 19th in 2020 is a celebration of um, the emancipation of slaves, and it went really well. But when we did it in cyber, about a week later, the cyber community rallied around this effort in a way that um, I don't think we could have imagined. And people were so creative. The uh, There was one pair, Rachel Tovac and Najla, they decided to help her raise funds, help Najla raise funds for certifications to advance in the industry. And when they exceeded that goal, they decided to create a scholarship fund for Share the Mic in Cyber. And that has been the archetype for how Share the Mic has grown. The ingenuity, the creativity, the collaborative spirit of the community has created new opportunities. So we have a scholarship that has run since that very first Cycle. We've had four more cycles. We'll have our fifth in October. And we have had roundtables with leaders across cybersecurity. We've had events with large companies. We have a fellowship that we are launching later this year um, in partnership with New America. We have CyberBase, which is a database of Black cyber practitioners that folks can reach out to about job opportunities or speaking or whatever with our street institute, and it just continues to grow. So the feeling that there was nothing that an individual can do was debunked through this campaign. People felt so empowered to create space for their colleagues to figure out how they could turn that into organizational change and then into a shift that is you know, permeating throughout the industry. And it is just a great model for how grassroots initiatives, individual initiatives can create a much larger change and has sparked a conversation about the impacts of systemic racism on our industry. And and it's important, right? It's not just a workforce issue either. It impacts how we are able to be effective as practitioners if we don't understand how different communities experience technology and therefore security, how they trust organizations and entities that drive cybersecurity change. Um, there's so many layers to it. And so this conversation has really opened that up.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And as I've sort of read more about it and, and researched into it, it sort of strikes me that there's, it's, such, it's, it's so huge and the momentum of it is so big because it isn't just the black practitioners that are there and and putting themselves forward and being vulnerable. And it's the allies as well that have sort of stood up with empathy and introspection. And, And then you've got all of the organizations around it that are willing to sort of support and fund. And it really is something that's quite magical, isn't it?
1: It is. And you're right. I mean, the vulnerability from every person that has engaged with this is wonderful and astounding. And the hardest part about you know, diversity and inclusion work is it requires a lot of tough and uncomfortable conversations. But I have witnessed allies and Black practitioners alike willing to have those conversations, willing to make mistakes and bounce back, learn from them and have the conversation again. And the openness to learn, the openness to be create corrected, the openness to the feelings that will differ, right? Like everyone experiences this differently. And so being open to the range of emotions that you could meet in trying to engage in this conversation has been something that I think is a wonderful byproduct of the campaign and um, a necessary piece of how we make progress across systemic bigotry of any kind, right? Um, And and so I hope it continues. I hope the momentum continues. I hope we are we continue to be able to break down some of the barriers to entry that we've seen, the barriers to progression, and I hope the fellowship is the next iteration of that.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, we used in our recent online summit, we used the share the mic community to try and get. Um, some speakers for the event and I was so amazed and impressed by the the response we had from the community we had so many people putting their name forward and such impressive people as well we, we did use quite a few for our program so it's definitely something that as a magazine will continue to, to to use that community because it was just yeah outstanding. I was I was really, really pleased and impressed, uh, impressed with it. So yeah, congratulations on all of your work, Max. I think it's amazing.
1: Thank you. And I'm so glad to hear that. That's the thing, right, is there are some really talented people already in the industry. We have a lot of conversations about getting new voices in, and we should. That is really important. There still needs to be new voices, but there was a gap in realizing that there are talented people already playing in this space. And I hope we continue to open that up so that they can turn into leaders in this space and that we have a full pipeline of diverse, talented um, practitioners that kind of permeate the industry across different communities. So I am so grateful that you engaged and that you had a good experience. I'm not surprised, but um, I hope it continues.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we will be shouting about it as well so that other people can can tap into that community because, yeah, it really was amazing. So um, I guess the last question before I go into our quick fire round at the end is what does the future look like for you, Camille? Like having achieved so much already and had so many different roles, do you have any ambitions? Where would you like to go next? That is a great question. Um, It ties back to
1: that impact piece. I mean, I just... If I can find a role where I can have more or different impact, um, that is what's next. So, that could manifest itself, like you said, in government, it could be in the private sector or at Google, um, focused on a different part of the problem, right? Like this coming together of disparate, like different teams around a common mission and leveraging. Um, Central security at Google has been really important to look across all of the products because they touch so many people across so many nations. It's truly a global product suite. And I don't know that that's a lens I could get anywhere else. Um, But the opportunity maybe to dive deeper in another area like how I did with mobile and be able to kind of guide some of the work that's happening there might also be an interesting opportunity. I like to remain open. This field changes so much. (laughs) The problem space, um, while it's always the same, also is always changing, right? The manifestation of the same things changes. And so I want to be able to be a part of changing how people interact with technology and secure themselves and so where I find a problem space and an opportunity that allows me to do that in a way that I feel like is impactful and actually additive that's where you'll find me.
0: I feel like I've got to, to know you uh, really well in this podcast already it's it's really nice um Okay, so I've got a few quick fire questions for you, completely random, um, but let's see how we go. If you could make one thing compulsory in the cybersecurity space, what would it be? For companies or for people? Either. Two-factor authentication if it's for individuals.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a good one.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Uh, If they made a movie about you, who would you want to play the lead role? (laughs) (laughs) oh that's a great question
1: um can Gabrielle Union do it I don't know if she looks like me but that would be amazing
0: (laughs) she doesn't have to look like you either I guess um you can make your own rules with this so is that your answer that is my answer definitely okay what's the best advice you've ever been given
1: to not let the um traditional path be a limitation to let it be a guide nothing about my career has been traditional and as i was like weighing some of the more traditional routes to being a lawyer and to being a lawyer in a in a technical space someone told me to just kind of let those be a guide but don't let them limit your ability to ideate and um, step into different career opportunities best advice i
0: ever got i love that i love that i'm starting to wonder whether the best advice i've ever been given is to make contracts with your parents so they pay you for grades it should definitely be on the list it should definitely <laughs> <laughs> definitely um, what's your favorite disney character ariel great answer why i don't know i just <laughs> love the little mermaid growing up
1: and the songs and it was just a good one
0: I think it's still my favorite, you know, like they've made such incredible with Pixar and there's there's so many great new movies now and the songs are amazing and the marketing's amazing, but the classic, like the original Little Mermaid, is they're just so magical, aren't they? Right.
1: They never get old. Never.
0: <laughs> so I'm I'm very impressed with that answer. <laughs> Two more questions. Um describe me your perfect night out or perfect night in.
1: Perfect night out. Dinner, drinks and dancing on a rooftop with good people, friends, my fiance. Yeah, it'll be a good night.
0: Like a city location?
1: Oh, definitely a city. I mean, if we could have taken a plane to said city beforehand, that would be even more me. But, you know,
0: <laughs> what city would you go to?
1: Oh, I, I'd have to be a different place every time. So let's go to Greece for dinner tonight and let's go <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> next week.
0: Why not? Dream big. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> um, and finally, I ask all of my guests this question. So it's the desert island question, which is if you are being sent to a desert island for a whole year on your own and you're allowed to only take with you one song, one book, and one luxury item, what would you take?
1: One song. Maybe something Beyonce. Anything a Beyonce phone. Yes, anything Beyonce. Um, one book would be, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but Yvonne Orgy just wrote a book and it was so good. Um, and I read it recently, her book. And then because it was empowering and motivational and kind of introspective, and I really enjoyed hearing her story and just kind of how she communicated the themes. And then one luxury item, my eye mask. <laughs> <Your> eye
0: mask.
1: <gasps> I know that's so random. But
0: <laughs> Get a good night's sleep.
1: I need to sleep. I would yeah, be focused on that right. by myself. So yeah, let's make that as comfortable as possible.
0: <laughs> Do you know most people's answers are somehow centered around sleep, whether it's a pillow. Or a mattress or an eye mask. Um, A lot of people think about sleep because you do a lot of it right for a whole year on your own.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's how you're going to kill the time. And after a year, I might as well be well rested.
0: (laughs) Exactly. A career break, much needed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, It's been such an honor to have you on the podcast today, Camille. So thank you so much for your time
1: my pleasure thanks for having me it was a great conversation
0: yeah and for anyone that wants to listen to camille's podcast it's at hustle over and i'm guessing camille is available on spotify and apple podcasts and all the usual places
1: yes hustle over entitlement you can find it any on any of those platforms
0: amazing well thanks camille
1: thank you have a good one
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. I've been Eleanor Dalloway, and it has been a pleasure to have you listening in. Join the conversation next month as I get to know my next guest.